0: Good morning, church. Uh, I'm very glad that you guys are here this morning. Uh, it's my pleasure to be up here and have the opportunity to bring the Word of God to us in our uh, day of worship. Um, Josh is on his way right now back home from the National Rally with the Soldiers uh, for Jesus Motorcycle Club. 900-mile uh, drive they have with like the whole family, so uh, we're going to pray for him in just a minute, but be praying for them and their return Um, If you don't know me, my name is Stephen Obert. I'm the youth director here at Disciples Church, um, and once in a while I get to come up here and preach, and really is something I love doing. So um, that being said, let's dive in. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Bow with me and let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Sundays truly are my favorite day of the week, to come together with my blood-bought family, to worship you in song and in in your word and prayer, to celebrate all that you've done and, and all that you are. Your grace should blow our minds every time we think upon it. God, thank you for your son. Thank you for your gospel that you would save a wretch like me. Lord, we lift up the Kirstein family on their drive home. We pray for uh, a good time of fellowship for them. pray for patience for parents and uh, for sleep for kids. Um, Lord, we pray that uh, you bring them home safely if that's your will. We pray this morning, God, as we dive into your word and and we look at uh, what you declare love to be, that where we hold Beliefs and ideas about love that are not in line with you, that, that you would remove those, that you would help us see those errors and correct them. For those of us who, who call you Lord, who call you Savior, that we would rightly represent who you are and, and what you declare love to be. We're desperate for your work in our hearts, Lord. Um, we ask that you be moving in our time together this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. When the word of God declares to us that if you have enough faith to move mountains, but you do not have love, then you are nothing, we should take this seriously. Love has become such a loose term in our world, but the word of God does not play lightly with the word love the way our culture commonly does these days. Having been in a few circumstances lately where the word love was used, but was not used in alignment with the biblical definition of love, I thought what better to preach on in Josh's absence than the biblical definition of love. What I want to do this morning is I want to show us the world's view of love and how different it is from God's view of love. What I mean is within our current society, and unfortunately, even within the realm of some of those professing to be Christian, we've been sold this view of love that is antithetical to the Bible's definition of love. So my goal this morning is to help you see clearly the error of our culture's view on love and walk away from our time having a well-rounded biblical view of love. In order to do this, I want to focus on three main points. Uh, For those of you that know me, you know I love my three points. So our first point is, where does love begin? The second point is worldly love versus biblical love. And then our third point is the proper application of the biblical view of love. So where does love begin? Worldly love versus biblical love. And the proper application of the biblical view of love. So before we dive into the difference between the world's view and the Bible's view, we need to lay some foundations. That's why our first point this morning is, where does love begin? I'm sure it's no surprise to you that love begins where everything begins, namely with God. What I want you to see this morning through God's very word is that without God, we cannot and do not truly love others. I mean this in the biblical definition of love. If we don't know God, we cannot love others the way God has said we should or the way God has designed love to work. So let's look at our first passage in 1 John chapter 4 verse 19. We love because he first loved us. We love because God first loved us. This passage in 1 John is focusing on believers. We know that because all throughout John's epistle, he refers to the people that he's writing it to as beloved. Beloved was an affectionate term that many of the New Testament writers used to refer to fellow believers. Another term used is brother. In Christ, all believers are family. We are brothers and sisters in Christ, and we should love each other as such. Now notice the clarity of this passage. We love God. Because he first loved us. The prerequisite to us loving God is his first loving us. If God does not love us, if he has not saved us so that we rightly know him, and if we do not rightly know God, we cannot love others the way God has designed love. Now let's look back to our passage in 1 Corinthians for some clarity here. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4 Love is patient and kind. And before we dive deeper into this point, I want to make a small point right here. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. If God is love, love being an attribute of God, then love, like God, never mingles with deceitfulness. It does not coexist with falsehood or lies. So to give up some of my cards a little early, let me say this. If God says something is sinful, wrong, unacceptable to him, yet you as a Christian say that in order to love someone, you're going to disagree with God, or you won't tell them that the thing they are doing or the lifestyle that they are choosing to live is sinful and wrong, then you are not loving. Rather, you are actually rejoicing at wrongdoing. And according to this verse, that is not love. There will be more on this in our next point, so let's move on in this first point. A good summary of the Corinthians passage would be to say that love is selfless. It is thinking more highly of others than yourself, it's looking out for others according to God's terms. Notice in the passage, it is not demanding your own way, it is not irritable or resentful. It bears, believes, hopes, and endures all things. This can only be done through knowing God and the gospel that enables us to love this way. God's love for you, Christian, was something he chose to have for you before you were born. In doing this, it proves that no matter who you are or what you do, you cannot change his great love for you. His love was placed upon you not based on works that you would do or some worthiness you think you have, And since you were not the cause of his love, you cannot undo this love either. This is a love that is outside of you. You can never have earned it, and you can never lose it. It is truly a selfless love. It was placed upon you because God decided to place it there. Listen, God was not in some kind of need. His love for you cannot be out of some kind of need of you. And this is stunning, Christian, because it also means you cannot change his love for you. Paul explains this love of God for us in Romans chapter 8, verses 38 and 39. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen? In case you were wondering, Christian, you are part of creation. So this passage covers you as well. You cannot separate yourself from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord, because he did this independently of you. Nothing can separate us from God's great love. So understanding this part of the gospel, that God has placed his love upon us before creating us, is very important. Now, he fulfilled this purpose, the purpose of his love, and proved it true for his people by sending his son to put on flesh, to live perfectly, and to take our place under his wrath for our sin. He raised his son and proved that the penalty was fully paid. Because of his great love for us, he will most definitely save all who are his. His love has a purpose, and it is fulfilled through Christ. Seeing this gospel love is what enables us to love in a selfless manner. Let me say it this way. When God saves us and reveals to us the beauty of his gospel, we now have something unchanging and unfading with which to use as a foundation and basis— of our love for others. The only way I can love you outside of yourself is if I love you because of God's love for me. If I love you for any other reason, it will be a selfish love, and therefore it will not be a biblical love at all. If I love you based upon anything else that is changeable, then my love for you can change, and it is not a biblical love. I think this is most clearly seen in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. We are to imitate God and walk in love as Christ loved us. Well, how did Christ love us? He gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. You see, Christ loved us by sacrificing his own life for us. But he did not do this primarily for us. He did it first and foremost out of his love for the Father. His love for us was best shown in his love for the Father. Again, this displays for us this other-centered love. This is where love comes from. It comes from a triune God who has always existed in this other-centered love for each other. We rightly love or we have the correct foundations of love for others when it is according to God and based in and through his gospel. I can love others regardless of circumstances because God loved me outside of any circumstance. God loved me because he simply chose to. Because of this, I can love others rooted and firm in God's love. You see, I don't need your love back. I have the most important love I need in God. I can love you genuinely and in truth because my love for you is not based on needing your approval. In God, I am adopted, I am chosen, I am loved and saved." You cannot give me anything more or better than God has already given me. And since all that I am and have is rooted in God, you cannot take anything from me either. Now I'm freed up to love you selflessly. I've been given the example and the foundation to do this in the gospel. So as a practical example, husbands or wives, why do you get irritable with your spouse or all of us? Why do we demand our own way? Or why are we so easily offended by someone else? Realize that according to the biblical definition of love in Corinthians, these things are not loving. Let me submit to you, it is because in that moment, that moment of resentfulness or demanding your own way, you've forgotten who you are in Christ. You're not loving that other person biblically. If the way they are treating you is robbing you of some value and worth that you've placed in them instead of in God, then you'll respond with irritability. When you do this, you prove that you've made them an idol. And this is not loving. I need to be reminded of this just as much as every one of you. How can my bride love me when I am waist deep in sin and being unlovable? Well, she can do that because her God loved her when she was waist deep in sin and unlovable. It was his very love that saved us from sin and gives us the ability to love others selflessly. He loved me and he gave his life for me so I can love others and give my life for them. This is what frees me to love my bride no matter how she responds or loves back. In fact, I'm commanded to love her in this very way, giving up my life for her. Husbands, I'm convinced that taking a bullet for our brides would be much, much easier than sacrificially laying down our life every day as the Lord has commanded us to do. The reason this is probably true is because we don't live practically like we claim to live spiritually. We forget that in Christ, our worth and our dignity needs have all been more than met And instead, we look to others, especially our spouse, for these things that only God could rightly give us in the first place. Men, you've got to see the beautiful foundation of love in the gospel here. This is where love comes from, and this is how we have a foundation to love biblically. You see, if my love is based upon my bride's performance, I will be irritable or resentful when she fails. Our Corinthians passage says that's not love. So if my love for my bride is based upon God's love for me, who can change that foundation? Can it be moved or shaken? What do we read in that verse through Romans? God is immutable. He does not change. There is nothing that can change his love for me. Therefore, my foundation is never moved. I am always freed to rightly love others if my love is rooted in the gospel. And since my foundation and reason to love others cannot be changed, then I can love my wife even when she's being hard to love. This love is a reflection of the way Christ loved me when I was in utter rebellion against him. Church, I hope you see this foundation of love. Love must be based in God or it will be selfish and not actually be love. This again is why I say you cannot love others truly the way God defines love if you do not know God. One last thing. Loving others from this foundation in no way gives the others a right to sin. If we ignore sin under the guise of love, we are not loving in truth. The attributes of love are also the attributes of God. God hates lies, but rejoices in truth. Love does not rejoice in lies, but it does rejoice in truth. Isn't it interesting how those attributes of love in our Corinthians passage line up with the attributes of God? So I hope you've seen clearly where love begins and where it is founded upon. Now I want to move to our second point, point two, worldly love versus biblical love. I want to begin with why our current culture's view of love is so far off from the biblical standard of what love is. We see in 2 Timothy 3.2 the answer. For people will be lovers... Of self. Now this passage keeps on going and it has some more clarities and adds things that, that people will love, but all of those added pieces come from this one truth. People will become lovers of self. When you are the top priority, when your heart becomes self-centered in its love, you cannot love the way the Bible defines love. Romans one twenty four says it this way, Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. You see, our current culture worships itself. They've become lovers of self, worshiping the creature rather than the almighty creator foundationally, this is why the culture's view of love is so different from the biblical standard. Just think back to that Corinthians passage and you'll see that the things that love does cannot be done if it is self-centered. It must be selfless love or it cannot meet the biblical standard of love. You see, in this lover of self-culture, people are encouraged to chase out their every desire. Of course, as long as the culture doesn't consider that desire wrong, Our culture encourages you to follow your heart. Just be yourself, trust your heart, you'll find your happiness. That's the best way you can love. Perhaps you've even heard this. You can't love others until you love yourself. You see how rooted this stuff is in self-centered love. It's a love that simply can't measure up to God's word. Now let me share a passage that clears up this follow your heart idea. Jeremiah 17.9 the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? If you met a mentally insane man, one who was obviously desperately sick and impossible to understand, would you go to him for counsel? Would you ask him questions? Would you trust him with your life? So why do we, even within the church, encourage people to follow their hearts? I would submit to you that it's not loving. It's actually in opposition to the word of God. The next major difference, remembering that all of this comes from the faulty foundation of self-love, is the press from our culture to accept what they call good, and don't you dare say it's evil, or worse, call it sin. Our current culture has moved from relativism where you can believe what you can believe and I can believe what I can believe and we can agree to disagree, which the world really never held to in the first place, to you can believe what you believe as long as it's what I believe. As long as you agree with my human view, then you can believe that. Otherwise, you're hateful. If you do not affirm and promote what our culture at large affirms and promotes, you are hateful. And and check this out, you can't possibly be Christian because you're not loving. Guys, the world knows that love should set the Christian apart, but it fails to understand what love is. So it simply applies its definition of love to condemn those who fail to meet the worldly standard. Recently on a TV show called The View, a panel of ladies interviewed a Christian baker who refused to make a wedding cake for a same-sex couple. During the interview, the cast asked the baker what he thought Jesus would do. A co-host, Paula Ferris, who has openly talked about her Christian faith, asked Phillips, the baker owner, what he thought Jesus would do in the situation. She said, I know you are a Christ follower, and even Jesus was criticized for hanging out with the lowest of the low and the tax collectors and sinners. Did you ever ask yourself what Jesus would do in the situation instead of denying them? Don't you think Jesus would have said, I don't accept this, but I'm going to love you anyways? Don't you think maybe that would have been a more powerful testimony? Phillips replied, I do not believe he would have because that would have contradicted the rest of the biblical teaching. I don't believe Jesus would have made the cake if he had been a baker. This is when Joy Bear responded to Philip's statement saying, Come on, Jesus would have made the cake. You can believe the Bible and everything, but Jesus, that's a deal breaker. He would have made the cake. You see, this happens all the time. And I've experienced this in my own life when I've approached someone about sin. They'll respond by telling me I'm not being Christ-like, simply for bringing light to the matter. What we saw after the baker's reply was Joy Bear, who is a professing unbeliever, proclaiming what Jesus would do based on her definition of love. Now, the bigger issue is you also have a professing believer on the show who's been sold on the world's view of love here and implies that Jesus would love this way instead of what the scriptures reveal about Jesus. Now, to be clear, Jesus did meet people in their sin. (laughs) Amen, right? (laughs) But his constant refrain was always, go and sin no more. It was never approval. It was never condoning. You see again the foundational failure when we worship the creature rather than the creator. We begin to value our idea of love for creature over what the creator has called sin and its offense against a holy God. Jesus, the second person of the triune God, would never have supported or condoned sin. The view exchange is just again another example of lovers of self. If God is not supremely valued over all other things, you will never love properly. Lovers of self believe that God exists to bring them joy instead of them existing to bring glory to God. This is the fundamental difference and problem in their definition of love. Love must end on them because that's what God exists for. Now, this is obviously a backwards view when we look at the Word of God. As a Christian, we must hold to a biblical worldview of what love is and isn't. We were created and exist to glorify God. Therefore, we must love in a way that brings God glory. When we approve of sin, we are not loving. We see the warning against approving sin further down in the Romans 1 passage. Romans 1 verses 28 through 32. Disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Notice how that little phrase is inserted. They don't just take part in these different sins. They give approval to others to do them. If you give approval to something that God calls sin, you are not loving. Rather, you are guilty of sin yourself and you are actually condoning a person as they travel on the broad road to ruin. This action cannot be loving. It is actually condemning. Scripture also has another staunch warning and it's a bit of a funny story personally for me. Uh, When I drove home, the night that I spoke with Josh back in January of 2003, a long time ago, uh, I'd spoke with him about volunteering in youth ministry. And we decided junior high, he had a unique way of hiding his excitement and pretending like that was a great gift for me. Um, but he said, go home, open up the Bible, pray, consider this before you take this. And so I did a little thing called Bible roulette. Anybody know that? I went right there. You just kind of flip through the pages and like, God, speak to me. Now, at least I had the right idea that God speaks through his word. But this little silly flip through the Bible and and stop on a page thing is, it's a silly game. I don't recommend it. Don't do that. Now, the first place that I landed was a bunch of heavy stuff about, if you have a red mark on your arm and it's got a ring around it, you got to go outside the camp. And if you've got a different white mark, but there's no ring, you're okay. And it's really confusing. And I thought, you know what? God, that was probably my fault. I'm, I'm, I'll go a little further. That's my bad. Um, now, amazingly, in God's Providence, I ended here in Matthew chapter 18, verse five and six. "Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone. Fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. I never played Bible roulette again. As I considered serving in youth ministry, this is the passage that I landed on. Now, this verse doesn't simply apply to working with kids and causing them to sin. Listen, if you confirm a sinful lifestyle, this verse is addressing you as well. If you condone or affirm sin, you are taking part with others in it. When we claim what God has called to be sin, to not be sin, then we cause others to sin and we are guilty. Church, listen. The Bible says it would be better for you if you tie a large millstone around your neck and drown yourself. If the scriptures have such harsh warnings, would I be loving to approve of sin? Would I be loving to tell you, so long as you don't take place in it, you can approve others in their sin? Of course not. The final major difference I want to unpack builds upon this point. Our culture says that if you think what it approves is wrong, you must be silent. And you must change your views or you are not loving. It continues to say, if you actually dare to disagree and try to show others an area of error, you're more than not loving, you are hateful. This view again comes from the faulty foundation of self-love and creature worship. If the highest authority is you and your heart has led you to whatever it is you're doing, then I can't convince you that God who actually is the supreme authority, says what you're doing is wrong. The foundation of your view as a creature worshiper, that God exists to make you happy, is where you get hung up. If you think you'll find joy in pursuing something, surely God could not or would not tell you it's wrong because he exists to make you happy. You see the error there? I actually remember one of my best friends saying to me while I was living in sin that it was okay because God wants me to be happy. He happened to be one of the strongest Christian friends that I had at the time. And church, this was over 12 years ago. If this kind of idea was bleeding into the church 12 years ago, you can only imagine how deep it's taken root in the church now. I'm going to address this more in our closing point, but I want to make this final point in transition. In our culture's view of love, if you say something is wrong or sinful, but it brings some type of joy to the person that's doing it, then you are not loving. That's what the culture says. If you challenge someone in regards to something that they love, you're not loving. That's the final point in difference between the culture's view and the biblical view of love. According to the word of God, Proverbs 27, 5 and 6, better... Is open rebuke than hidden love? Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Just think about how stark a contrast this passage is compared to the world's view of love. Our culture says a true friend stays by you and is always with you. They don't contradict you, they always support you. This passage says that's actually an enemy. The enemy kisses you. He approves of all the things and never rebukes you. The friend, the one who truly loves you, is faithful to wound. Rebuke is often hard. That's why this word wound is there. They're faithful to rebuke you because they care. If your friends, if those you love have never said you're wrong, they're more than likely not friends. Jesus said in Luke seventeen three. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. He goes on to say, as many times as your brother repents, you forgive. Now, the idea of rebuking someone who's claiming to be a brother in Christ and is not in line with the Word of God has quickly become the quickest route to being labeled hateful in our world, even within the Christian church. If you actually obey God's word in our current culture, you will be labeled as a bigot, a hater. You will be called evil. You cannot call anything that our culture says is good sinful. If you are not in line with the world's view on things, you are hateful, period. Now, of course, Scripture says the opposite. Isaiah 5, verse 20 and 21. Woe to those who call good who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. If love means never correcting, never saying no or you're wrong, How does anyone ever grow up? Part of the problem we are facing as a society is people don't grow up anymore. The prolonged adolescence epidemic is very real in the world that we live in. Now just think this through with me. When a child is born, they are ignorant. They they don't know anything. They're needy. They haven't learned how to do anything. The first thing a good, loving parent does is begin to train their child so that it will grow in knowledge. It will grow in its ability to do things. If we took an infant and said we have to accept them the way they are, we cannot drive any change into them for fear of contradicting their desires, how would that child be when they are 15? Would they even survive that long? Many of you have met a child who was never disciplined growing up. Is it fun to spend time with people like that? I have a a personal story that gets me a little choked up, so bear with me as we kind of walk through this next part. My aunt and uncle adopted a young girl when I was a teenager. For the first 10 months of Jessie's life, her parents never took her out of her car seat. They fed her adult food like pizza crust, To a baby. They paid very little attention to her. When my aunt and uncle got her at 10 months old, she couldn't hold her head up. She didn't crawl. She couldn't roll over. She was malnourished, and the effects of leaving her alone and neglecting her had already caused damage to her brain and body that were irreversible. She was such an awesome girl. Despite her health issues, she lived until one month before her eighth birthday. The struggles she lived with and the short life she had were caused by people who left her to herself. They did not help her grow or raise her. They did not interact with her or teach her things. Leaving an infant this way for just ten short months permanently affected her. And in the few short years of her living with my aunt and uncle, she grew and learned multiple things. She learned sign language. It was the first place I'd ever seen sign language being used. She learned how to talk a little bit. She even had her own unique way of communicating. She had the best smile. Warmed your heart when you entered the room. Now, all of that happened because my aunt and uncle, in love, raised her up. They taught her things. They even told her no when she was wrong. Jessie was a gift to our family. There's no one she didn't affect with her life. However, her life was shorter than most because of the damaging effect of neglect. Now, no one would say what her birth parents did was loving. But this is how our world tells us we must treat others if we want to be truly loving. The culture would never treat a child they love this way. However, they demand that we treat adults this way or be labeled a hate group. We live in a world that says, you can't tell me what I'm doing is wrong or dangerous. You have to let me do what I want and you have to tell me I'm okay doing it or else you hate me. Church, do you see the problem here? If you had a family member killing themselves with drugs or alcohol, regardless of their age... Would you go out and buy them more to support their habit in the name of love while they died from consuming it? Or would the truly loving thing to do be intervention, even if that family member yells and screams and says you're hating them? My point here is that the worldly definition of love is not only inconsistent, it is very dangerous. It is dangerous to allow people to do things that can hurt them. It is not loving. Proverbs 3.12 reads, For the Lord reproves him whom he loves, as a father the son in whom he delights. You see, God, who is love, reproves those whom he loves, just like a father reproves the son in whom he delights. The beauty of God's love is that it was given to us by God's free choice outside of anything we did. And it was also given to us to save us. It had a definite purpose. It was intentional and personal. God placed his love upon us, first because he decided to, and then because he was going to change us from the person that we were to the person that he wants us to be. Love does change people. It does show people when they're wrong. It does reprove people. If God, the creator and definer of love, calls reproof a loving act, then the world's argument that it is not loving is quite simply wrong. This leads me to my last point. The proper application of the biblical view of love. In order to understand how to properly live out the biblical view of love, we need to see where our problems arise. You see, a major, fa- a major problem facing the church today is that we are so drenched in our culture that we begin to adopt its worldviews. This happens so slowly that most times we don't even recognize it. As this happens, it becomes an idea that Christians begin to live by. So as we close and look at how Christians are to hold a right view of biblical love, I can't help but turn to this verse in John 14, verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. I could sum this whole point up by saying, if you want to know how to properly love biblically, keep God's commandments. That's how. You see, as a Christian, we must love God above all things. And when we do, our heart will desire to obey him. In fact, in Luke, Jesus unpacks it like this. Luke 14, 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now, Don't let the word hate throw you off here. Jesus is saying, if your love for me doesn't exceed your love for all of these other things, if it doesn't exceed it so much so that it looks as if you hate these other things, then you don't love me properly. If you don't love God properly, you won't love anyone else properly. So to rightly understand how to apply the biblical view of love, we must start with loving God above all things. And in that love, the simple outflow is an obedience to God. Simply put, if you want to know how to apply biblical love to your life, you do so by obeying God's word. So first you must be saved. You must love God above all things. Then, out of that love, you will obey. Now here's the tricky part, and I hope this blesses you as it has blessed me. If you've ever been confronted by a brother or sister in sin, who's truly loving you, and you want to know if what they're saying is correct, Look to the scriptures. Don't be fast to to argue, to fight, to get angry, to be resentful. Let me be so bold as to say this. Our worldview has been so tainted by our culture that we often unfriend those who are actually doing the most loving thing they could possibly do. Why? Well, Because we've accepted this culture's view of love and we've failed to see if the action of another believer lines up with God's view of love. I'm going to get to a practical example after I read this passage in Ephesians. Ephesians 4, uh, 12 through 16. To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. If you are a believer, then Paul's term saint is you. And Paul uses that term, he's talking about believers. You have been called to do the work of the ministry. So what is that work? We are to build up the body of Christ until we attain full unity of faith and knowledge of Jesus. Until we reach mature manhood, and this maturity in manhood matches the full stature of Christ. How do we know what that maturity in manhood looks like? We look to Christ. Why is this so important? Church, why do we strive for maturity? Why do we spend our lives building up fellow believers, discipling them? holding them to sound doctrine, teaching theology, and pushing others into Christ. Well, verse 14 unpacks it. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. You want to know if you understand the difference between the world's love and the biblical love? then be discipled. Grow up. Push into Christ. You don't want to be fooled by human cunning? Here's your answer. This tossed to and fro description reminds me of those inflatable guys at car lots and other stores. You know, the ones that are like, they're doing this thing and the body's moving all around. Is that what you want your life to look like? That's what happens when we fail to grow. When we refuse to be discipled and mature, we remain in these ruts of immaturity and we're literally tossed all over by cunning, deceitful schemes of man. Our passage goes on to say, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Christians, we have been called to speak the truth in love. It is not loving to lie. It is not loving to avoid being truthful about something with others. It is also not loving to bash people over the head with truth. When we consider how to rightly live out the the biblical definition of love, it involves speaking the truth with gentleness, with love, with a desire to see someone change. What good is it to speak the truth as harshly as you can? What that proves is that you're not aiming to help the other person see the truth. You're actually aiming to condemn them with that truth. When I'm concerned about a brother and their failure to sin, their their failure into sin, I want to come alongside of them with the truth. And I want to do it in such a way that it reveals my heart's desire to help them see their error and repent of it. Not to condemn them with it. Now, even our best efforts at this with fellow believers can be received poorly. What I mean is I've personally spent time praying and fasting for days before confronting a brother that I loved over their sin. And their harsh response revealed that they had no idea how much I cared and what my heart's aim was in showing them their sin. The aim of our hearts, Christians, should always be to lovingly help and restore as much as it is in our power to do so but that does not mean that the one we are confronting will always see it in that light. That's why I wanted to bring this to you today, Christian. If you feel like someone is improperly judging you, you must, in love, search the word of God to see if they are out of line. If a brother or sister leaves you in sin, they leave you in condemnation. That is not loving. You don't have to do this just on your own. You can ask other leaders, ask your discipler, Maybe even bring it to your elders if need be. And listen, if your discipler, if, if other leaders, if the elders go, no, that brother or sister's right, they're trying to love you here, then believe that. Repent of that sin. This is how we lovingly obey the command from Scripture to speak the truth in love and hold our brothers and sisters accountable to God's word. Maybe a simpler way to say all of this is if a professing believer expresses concern for you in some manner, about a consistent lifestyle or sin that they see you living in, search the scriptures and hear your brother or sister out. Listen, these are the faithful wounds of a friend. One of my favorite Charles Spurgeon quotes goes like this. If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let not one go unwarned and unprayed for. And that guy knew how to talk. This can be applied both to those professing faith and those in disbelief. If we truly love others well, we will lovingly cry out to them when they're living in sin to repent. We'll not watch them walk down the broad road to destruction. If they must, let them walk over my body, crying out to them. As Christians, we're also called to love our enemies. Matthew 5.44 says, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. We don't do this by ignoring their sin. Rather, we do it by lovingly showing them their sin and their desperate need for a Savior. We do this by calling them to repentance and faith as Jesus did all throughout his life and ministry. As Christians, we're also called to have a special and deep love for fellow believers. In fact, multiple times in the epistle of 1 John, John says, if you do not love your fellow brothers, you are not a Christian. 1 John 2, 9 through 11. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling but whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes let me leave you with this If we are to have a special love for our brothers, it rightly follows that we should be extra slow to think they are wrong or judgmental when they risk confrontation to point out sin in you. We should take extra precautions and we should get counsel if needed. One of the biggest mistakes you can make, Christian, is to miss the faithful wounds of a brother. Christ has called us to other-centered love rooted in God. He gave us the example of this at the cross when, he, when his love for the Father caused him to obey and give his life for a ransom. Through his finished work, we are now freed from the bonds of sin and enabled to love others selflessly, rooted in that gospel news. If this is not you today, if you have not trusted Jesus for your salvation and repented of your sin, Hear my heart. I cry out to you. Repent. Believe. Don't live another day outside of God's love. Experience true biblical love and join us as we live for God's glory. Church, we do not love others well when we do not obey God in regards to love. If you stand by stamping a person's ticket on the path to destruction and never call out to them about the danger of their path, you're not loving. You're not. You're not loving people when you do this. You're simply joining them in sin and giving approval to it. From the biblical worldview, we must, we must, if we truly love others, call them to repentance when they are in sin. We must walk with them as they work through it. We must be diligent to encourage and reprove as often as it's necessary. So I said at the beginning I wanted to lay our foundation from where love comes from. I wanted to show you the difference between our culture's definition of love and the biblical definition of love. And I wanted to end with clear practical teaching on how to live out this biblical love. Love truly does set us apart as Christians. John 13, 34 and 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Bow your heads as we close in prayer. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you, God, that we have your word, that we can dig into it, that that you've not left us to try and figure out what you expect or what love is. God, thank you for your deep love for us, for those you have saved from their sin and their wretchedness the foundation that you've given us to rightly love others, the freedom from sin, the the ability to love people selflessly would be impossible without you, God. Thank you for your selfless love and thank you, God, that your love was not purposeless but purposeful, that it wasn't just made outside of us and then left, but that you had a purpose in placing your affection upon us and it was to save us even at the great cost of your son. God, our our hearts are are desperate for your help here to rightly love others, to keep our value and worth grounded and rooted in who you say we are. So we ask that your spirit would move in our hearts, fill us with this ability that, that the world would know that we are Christians because of our love for our brothers. Thank you so much for this time, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray.